Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 133, Townsend. On March 18th, 1766, the Stamp Act was repealed. This had the potential to mark a turning point in the relationship between Britain and America. It had become obvious that if the Americans opposed something, it was impossible to enforce it. The Americans enjoyed their English liberties and would not surrender the principle of no taxation without representation. They would be happy to contribute financially to the British Empire, but it needed to be done through the colonial assemblies, not through Parliament. However, as we've talked about repeatedly during this series, the British had a very different understanding of parliamentary sovereignty. Rather than meaning that taxation could only be carried out with the consent of the governed, as expressed through representative democracy, they meant specifically that the institution of Parliament was sovereign over the British Empire. This is why the more significant piece of legislation passed was not the repeal of the Stamp Act itself, but the Declaratory Act that accompanied it. Parliament needed to assert that while it would not collect the stamp tax, this was only because it was impractical. This tax, specifically, was causing economic problems and so needed to be repealed. But few other than Pitt would challenge that Parliament had a right to collect taxes in the colonies. This will be crucial in the decisions that will take us from here to Lexington and Concord, now only nine years away, over the next two episodes. But we're beginning to get ahead of ourselves. First of all, what was the reaction to the repeal of the Stamp Act? There was a great deal of excitement across America. Dr. Franklin sent his wife 14 yards of pompadour satin in celebration. Bonfires were held by the Sons of Liberty in Boston, toasts and banquets were held along the Atlantic seaboard, New York proposed to erect an equestrian statue of King George and a brass statue of Pitt, the defender of American liberty. South Carolina arranged a marble statue of Pitt, but would not build one for the king. The Burgesses of Virginia voted for a statue for George, but would not provide funds. There already seemed a slight distrust of the king, but absolutely no praise was given to the Prime Minister who had actually repealed the Act, Rockingham. As for the Declaratory Act, they gave it relatively little attention. James Otis in Massachusetts made it clear that he felt the Act gave Parliament no authority to tax the colonists. In Britain, the prevailing attitude was a desire for normalcy, but there was a similar dissatisfaction with the performance of the Premier. Rockingham had simply made too many enemies. He was opposed by Grenville, who had designed the Stamp Act, along with the Quartering Act and American Duties Act, the lingering Butte faction, and the King's friends. It was time for a reshuffle. Rockingham left as Prime Minister in July 1766 to be replaced by Pitt. Pitt had been providing the clout for Rockingham's policies, despite opposing the weakness of the ministry. 
King George had a similar distaste for Rockingham. While George had opposed Pitt's lack of principles in the past, he seemed to be the best choice available, and so a political alliance was formed. The idea was to create a ministry of all the talents, a pragmatic government that was not bound by faction, was loyal to the king, and had a popular base of support, with Pitt at the head. Pitt's authority would bring an end to the infighting within the Whigs, and stop creating unnecessary problems with America to allow Britain to turn to the fresh problems facing the country in the 1760s. The continental system of the 1750s had been severely damaged by the Seven Years' War, and Pitt wanted to refocus British attention. The later years had shown the dangers of a Bourbon alliance of France and Spain, and so Pitt designed a grand alliance of Britain, Prussia and Russia. He would fix the finances of the empire, not in America, but in India. Just as the Seven Years' War had established Britain as the major power in North America, they were also now the dominant faction on the Indian subcontinent. There was a great opportunity to use the East India Company to get rich, plundering Bengal. All this could be implemented by learning the lessons of the Seven Years' War. Newcastle and his cabinet had gotten in the way when he wanted to preemptively declare war on Spain. He resigned this office, lacking their confidence, only to have them follow the exact same policy several months later. Therefore, his Ministry of All the Talents would be staffed with people he could dominate and who would not stand in his way. It was quite a plan. It was also completely insane. To start with Pitt's European Grand Alliance, this was obviously going to go nowhere. Prussia had been Britain's ally during the Seven Years' War, and felt betrayed that Britain had gained so much while Prussia had gained nothing. Russia had also been at war with Prussia during the war, except for a brief alliance when Paul came to power, but that was over with Catherine the Great now in charge. With neither Prussia or Russia interested, Pitt's anti-Bourbon plan was dead on arrival. As for solving the empire's money problems with India, that was an interesting idea that had potential. Dr Franklin would, over these years, develop his own plan for how excess Indian tea could be sold to America that wasn't taken up by anyone, but Pitt was not a master of finances. His previous stint in government had been successful with Newcastle running the finances and dealing with the London merchants. Pitt's role had always been big-picture thinking, and his dominance in the House of Commons. To use Horace Walpole's scathing remark, the multiplication table did not admit of being treated in epic. But, I hear you say, at least Pitt could rely on his command of the commons. Except no, because he wanted a different position in the government. He would lead it, but would not be the first Lord of the Treasury, instead wanting the position of Lord Privy Seal, which had no specific responsibilities. This meant that he would need to move to the Lords, as he became the Earl of Chatham, depriving him of the basis of his authority. 
Without this, he would need to rely on his big-picture thinking. Except there was a problem with this too. Pitt, now aged 57, was in declining health. He suffered from gout, which drove him to the edge of insanity. The policies he was proposing made no sense. Perhaps the situation could have been kept under control if he'd had a strong cabinet, except no, his cabinet was purposefully lacking in talent. The king and Pitt's associates refused to accept that Pitt was in no position to become prime minister. He was desperate for somebody to save him from Grenville and Rockingham, and so created an even worse scenario. The situation was manageable throughout 1766, but in March 1767, Pitt's position deteriorated, and he withdrew completely from society for two years. But he was not removed as prime minister. It was thought that perhaps the First Lord of the Treasury, the Duke of Grafton, could take command. Indeed, he would become Prime Minister in 1768, or the Secretary of State for the Southern Department, the Earl of Shelbourne, could take over government business. But instead, it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer who rose to prominence. Charles Townsend. Along with Grenville, Charles Townsend goes down in history as one of the key causes of the American Revolution. I'll allow Horace Walpole to introduce him for us. Quote, his figure was tall and advantageous, his action vehement, his voice loud, his laugh louder. He had art enough to disguise anything but his vanity. End quote. He was a man of great talent and voice who over a few short months in 1767 would have a tremendous impact on world history. Charles Townsend was born in Norfolk in 1725 into the English aristocracy, being the second son of the third Viscount Townsend. He was a sickly child, but very talented, and in 1749 he joined the Board of Trade, starting a lengthy apprenticeship of colonial policy. He was a Lord of the Admiralty and served in Pitt's government during the Seven Years' War. He was talented, but his talents included making enemies, and he never made it to the higher rungs of government. Indeed, I've mentioned him on and off in previous episodes, but he's never been central to the story. It was only in August 1766 that Pitt finally relented and brought Townsend into a position of genuine power, and it seems that he immediately realised his mistake. Shortly before his withdrawal from society, he attempted to replace Townsend with the future Prime Minister Lord North, but he was unable to do that. What would follow over the next few months was a period where Townsend attempted to take his years of learning about American and colonial policy on the Board of Trade, and a specific interest in taxation, and apply it in a series of legislation that are known as the Townsend Acts. These are the New York Restraining Act, the Revenue Act, the Indemnity Act, the Commissioners of Customs Act, and the Vice Admiralty Court Act but we'll get into the specific of the acts next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.